0: Radio يو يشير من مخنفر
1: Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk with Rabbi Elliot Olivet in Highland Park, New Jersey, the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation. Anshe And Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry J. Chesler, Solomon Schechter Day School at Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kabanovsky in New York City. Anshe Chesed. It's great to see you. We have this amazing Parsha to talk about. This is Parshat Bo. Parshat Bo. Shmot Vaera Bo. This is the third Parsha in the book of Shmot. We are seven plagues into the ten plagues. Um, and here the Parsha starts with this. We'll just start where the Parsha starts. Go to Pharaoh. I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants so that my signs, my wonders can be present in front of him. I, you know what I wanted to kind of go you know take a little bit of a 30,000 look and ask what may be an obvious question at least to me and why didn't Pharaoh just lock him up why didn't he, why didn't he just off
2: before we get there go ahead I, I wanted to point out something we expect to have the word lech go to Pharaoh so it seems like a suggestion especially in, in the way the parsha unfolds that God has already in Egypt, in the palace, and he's inviting Moshe to come join him uh-huh. in front of Pharaoh.
0: I think that's, I, I really like that observation because I, I would do it maybe a teeny bit different that, you know, well, whatever, Lech also, Lech also pursue your destiny. Abraham, of course, Lech Lecha, uh, you know, go somewhere is, is a journey, but to come, it seems like Moshe is arriving at some place where he's supposed to be um in in this confrontation with paro well, why doesn't just lock him up but we, wait, wait! We wait. That,
1: don't forget the expression boel perot is not unique to this you know no. movement we have it in chapter nine the previous partial. i think we have it a couple other times and yeah it partial, but but i love i love the drush on, on that the, the, that new, the nuance on
0: coming is okay. so why doesn't fair just lock him up we as a matter of fact not only do we you know not only would that make a certain amount of logic uh you know especially in, in american life and and even in israel where people are so their opponents should be locked up everyone should be locked up um i think I, we I, had a political leader in our country who suggested that. i more think than that's one. true i think it's true uh so there's a way in which in a power imbalance you know like uh the irony of this confrontation is that pharaoh seems like he's got all the power but moshe actually has all the power so the space in between the irony of where you think where the ostensible meaning at the pshat level, but the true meaning at the deep level is the opposite, and so Pharaoh is all powerful. He's the he's, you know Titanic emperor of this of this huge this huge powerful nation, and this little pisher is coming up, and he's making some audacious request. It's like I think Pharaoh, at least for the beginning of this, just considers Moshe beneath contempt, no threat at all. I don't know who your God is just 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 I'm not you're not even worth my time of course, that gets out of hand, but you you sort of wonder you know what why he doesn't just kill him or lock him or something like that but we do know that the Egyptians, by the way, they like to lock up people that's the beginning of the Egypt story yeah. back with Joseph they like to lock up people and even and Pharaoh, not just he, Joseph liked, likes to lock up his servants
2: right so it's, 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 what I would add Yeah, I I think Jeremy made an excellent observation is that I'm reminded, I haven't read the story in a long, long time, of the Blue Hotel by Stephen Crane, which is a series of events where one inexorably leads to the other. And what we're seeing here is a chain of events that in retrospect, you wonder why it came to this because it could have been stopped at any point, right? Farrell could have locked him up. He might've done worse to him. But he's so wrapped up that he can't make the astute decision that he needs to make because he doesn't realize what the game actually is that he's playing. Well, So he's he's making one decision after another.
1: Let's let's give Pharaoh a certain benefit of the doubt. Let's, Let's say that he has some wisdom and that he's made a calculation. And what would be his calculation? Well, on the one hand, you're saying... Well, I've got all the power. This is a nuisance. What What am I going to do? Or does he say something like, "Do I benefit from assassinating him? Do I benefit from putting him away, or will I cause more damage by doing that?" Look, I mean, I you know, we, we we're talking about, about political enemies in in Russia. So there's something called sudden sudden Russian oppositional death syndrome where opponents of Putin end up in a ditch or off a balcony or in a car accident. And all of a sudden, you know, you know, one, two, now there are about half a dozen, maybe a dozen of them that that have ended up that way. But Navalny, his major opponent, is in jail somewhere. Uh, so, what, would, what would happen if he, if, and he tried to assassinate him, right, in jail, I think. And that suggests what, Barry?
2: So one of my early loves was politics and political science. And there's an old rule that in politics, power is greater when it's potential, not when it's actually used. So that we could look at Pharaoh as trying to preserve his power by not executing it, by executing Moshe. So that as long as he doesn't have to make a move, he actually has more power because people think he has it. Once he... Uses that power, it's gone, and it's hard to hard to get it back again. But the other thing we were talking about earlier, before we started recording, is that you know to kill the enemy is actually a sign of weakness, not of strength. And at some point, that will penetrate to the people that the pharaoh needs. You know, when you run a slave country, you need to keep the slaves docile, right? You don't want your your great fear always is that there's going to be a rebellion. Which was Pharaoh's concern in chapter one, and so you don't want to do anything that's going to shake, rock the boat, unless it's absolutely necessary. And the problem always is, when do you know that it's absolutely necessary? And sometimes it, you recognize too late. Well, is it ever effective? Is is political assassination
1: ever an effective tool? I mean, well, I you think, think a well scenario. That he doesn't have the ability to crush the entire population the population would have gone crazy they could have you know,
0: you know it's, it's funny that you that we're having this conversation now because over the years uh the three of us have many times talked about you know politics and the security situation and and the violence in israel and we have you know maybe generally speaking elliot has been a little bit more hawkish on some of these things than than than, than me or barry but Israel is a country that, that engages in political assassination. And sometimes I kind of like feel pleased to hear it. Like I don't mind that the Hamas guys or the Islamic Jihad guys don't go to bed feeling confident. I, I like that they that they go to bed feeling nervous. And um and and yet it can also be the argument that you just made, which is like you can't kill everyone in Gaza and you're just you're just fomenting more and more opposition to yourself every time you kill a, a Hamas fighter.
1: It's, in, in, in a war situation, there are calculated risks when they when they use targeted assassinations. Look, you know, and, and the Americans uh, killed Suleimani in, in Iraq. You know, that was their, you know, that was like the end of the chess game, okay? Didn't
0: Israel kill him? And, I noticed that Trump claimed, the, Trump claimed credit for that the other day, but I think Israel killed him, no?
1: No, Suleimani was killed by the Americans. Oh, Israel. okay. No, so so in a war, in a war, you know, everything is on the table. This is not a war. This is a, a a rebellion and insurrection. I want to ask this question. I want to pose this. Do you think Pharaoh likes the game? Do you think Pharaoh needs the opponent? And and here I, I'm, you know, studying this. Um, I I, I happen to being reviewing this uh, chapter uh, a while ago. And um, I, had, I had just seen a, a, a testimony, a Holocaust testimony, uh, of a chazan in Ottawa. His name was Moshe Kraus, and uh, the commandant in in whatever camp he was in kept him alive because he was a good singer, and and in other words, he needed to preserve his own myth of his own humanity. That is, the the evil person, the commandant, needed to preserve the. The, the myth the mythology of his humanity by keeping this guy alive. He needed him for his own benefit. And I, I, I do wonder whether or not Pharaoh is keeping Moses alive because he needs the game. He needs he needs the competition. You know you, know, you, you by, do need by, your by opponent.
0: These, in these la- in these latter plagues um you know Pharaoh's falling to pieces and and he says I'm guilty I'm guilty I'm guilty and then Moshe says, "Okay, I'm going to make the plague go away." And Pharaoh says, "Yeah, let's. I I take that back. You know, I'm not. I'm not that guilty. Listen, I I can understand. You know, or or uh, all right, all right, all right. You can go. No, you can't go. You you can go, but you have to leave your children and your livestock here." Uh, So Pharaoh's kind of losing it, and he's contradicting himself. He's promising one thing, he's going another way. His walls are breaking, and you know, we often talk, uh, interpreters of these these passages. You know, one of one of the classic questions to ask is god hardens pharaoh's heart um, isn't this massively unfair isn't god just ex- extending out pharaoh's suffering and the egyptian suffering isn't god robbing pharaoh of his own free will uh you know that seems to contradict the basic principle of of religion and 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 the importance of each human being's decisions and behavior but i think that vayhazek adonai paro the God, i hardened his heart i strengthened his heart means i gave him courage to be the person that he wants to be i i pharaoh has chosen his path he is the person who rules by dint of his you know tremendous tyrannical power or whatever and now he's getting a whooping and the locusts have eaten his food the hail has destroyed his food the country's plunged into darkness and God's giving Pharaoh the strength to be able to say, you know, you, you think you're going to beat me with a little darkness? You're going to beat me with darkness. I'm, I'm hanging in there. <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> Elliot, you, you make a a great observation, but the game here is diplomacy. And we we often use the word game in two different ways. This is not a game like Monopoly, but a game in the way of, uh, not unlike uh, Johann Heisinger, the great uh Flemish historian wrote about it in his book Homo Ludens a ritualized behavior between human beings, and it suddenly occurs to me that because we're Jews, obviously, we read the Torah oftentimes through a very narrow lens. The question that it would be worth thinking about is what is Pharaoh's endgame? Right, this is a diplomatic problem. He has Moshe who represents or claims to represent all these slaves. It's clear what Moshe wants the end game to be. He wants to leave Egypt. But how does Pharaoh think it's gonna end? Yeah, that's an and excellent. that may also be why he doesn't kill him. He wants permanent subjugation, he wants a permanent
1: class of slaves because that's the structure of Egyptian society requires so does,
2: does that actually make sense of his responses then?
1: That or to, how does
2: it make sense of his response?
1: the status quo. Keep uh, a a class of of people so that he can remain in power and he can sustain an economy that is so built. so.
2: He's going to keep letting Moshe and Aaron come. He's going to talk to them for a few minutes, tell them whatever he thinks they want to hear, and then contradict it as soon as necessary.
1: Exactly. No, I think I think you 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 you've made a really interesting insight that that the wavering here that we see which requires his you know God an external source at this point in the story for, which is God to harden his heart to keep him steadfast I think that's 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 crucial um and and you know, that,
0: uh, I I, uh, I would just ask a couple of questions about this you know it, of, of course is, is not surprising and natural and sensible that we always read these things through our own experience and and the contemporary world that we live in and so we kind of uh filter filter this ancient story through through that it's all but impossible for a um all but impossible for a uh uh you know modern north american to not read this in conversation with black slavery in the united states and so you just made a a description you know he wants he wants a steady supply of labor he wants to build a whole economy on this it, it seems to me that while those things might apply to Egypt, I don't think the Torah necessarily says those things about Egypt. You know, we always say stuff like, you know, well, we built the the pyramids, and you know, actually, the pyramids were much much longer before go before the Bible. Um, I don't really know the role. I mean, black slaves. African slaves obviously kept up an economy in the American South, and they needed and they needed the free labor or cheap cheap labor because, of course, it wasn't exactly free. They were they were you know sustaining them, buying them, trading them, but I'm not sure that that's true in Egypt. It may simply be the case that you know was mm-hmm. a massive country; they got they probably got a gazillion slaves, and even if they didn't, and even if there's one little people uh, left left, they would still have plenty of other slaves. And oh, so, so only it's only, it's only when it's only when, when, you know, Moshe leaves with like an Erev rav that Egypt is a mess. Uh, I think that, I think that there may simply be just straight up cruelty, not economic calculation in enslaving.
1: But but there's also a a political calculation here, which is, if I have one, if I have an insurrection among one group of slaves, uh, that's going to spill over to the other slaves. Uh, You know, you're saying, I think rightly so, that, that, You know, they weren't the only slaves in Egypt, you know. So what would happen if one group of slaves follows their leader? So we have this, quote unquote, Erev Rav, that, you know, a mixed multitude that leaves with them. Um, But, you know, Egypt doesn't empty out completely uh, of slaves. Um, And slavery exists in Egypt, I don't know, you know, still uh, beyond this time for several hundred years, probably. Slavery is part of every every ancient society.
0: There's no, there's no, not until modern times does anybody come up and say, oh yeah, slavery is wrong in principle for all societies in all places in all times. There's no way that agricultural societies built, you know, the things that they built without slaves. And the, the, the modern, you know, uh, Declaration of Human Rights says slavery is wrong at all, at all times in all places and in all circumstances, even though it's not entirely fulfilled in the world today. Um,
1: but, but I would give a reading of the Bible that, that the Bible, while uh, understands the existence of the institution, also undermines slavery. We're getting ahead of ourselves because that's, you know, when the Ten Commandments are given, the commandment to keep Shabbat includes the the, the, the that your slave will rest, okay? Which is, in a way, a, a radical... Uh, iteration of what a slave is if a slave is entitled to rest that undermines slavery so built within well within i would the
0: say bible. i would say that i would say that that actually i'm going to put a push uh, back. <laughs> uh, I'll, put, I'll put a i'll put an asterisk on this because i of course this is true and the bible has in the institution of the evadivri uh i think a very benevolent description of you know of a kind of servitude but i also think that it treats i mean this is there's no did, my says. That my Mahdi says straight up that the Bible's description of the Eved Kenani, the non-Jewish slave, is not befitting the, the kindness of the Israelite people, the Jewish people, and so it, it is permitted, and we shouldn't behave that way, and we should cultivate a kindness. So I, I think it is ameliorated, and ameliorated is the way the Bible is. The Bible is not, you know, the Bible is not <laughs> Mao. It's not, we must wipe away the past and start anew. It's the Bible is, let's make the world better tomorrow than it was today. Okay.
1: So let's move to the to the next plague. We have the plague of locusts, and after the plague of locusts, we have the uh, the warning for the plague of of darkness. God says to Moses, "Spread your hand over the sky, and there shall be darkness on the land of Egypt." We talked about that last, and you should you gonna feel. Feel this darkness. So Moses does this: is darkness for three days. And one man didn't see his brother. And a man didn't get under from from out from under him for three days. But the Israelites had light, in there. It's such a gorgeous, gorgeous verse. It's so much, so much, um, so many lovely sermons on the fact that there is light among the Jews but there's not light among the Egyptians. But I want to go beyond this. Pharaoh's heart gets hardened again by Yichazek donai Lev Paro. And, uh, you know, he, he refuses to let Moses go. And Moses, and he says to Moses, Lech Lech get out of here, instead of bo, lech. lecha, be warned. Al Tosef rod panai, do not see my face again. Now he's saying, the next time you see me, if you see me, you will die. Okay? Moses says, yeah, that's, that's nicely, right. said. Nicely, nicely said. Nicely said. So here he does hint or warn him that he's gonna assassinate him. Okay. Uh and and it's it's such a great moment because it's the moment that their anger spills out in the open. I mean, you know, the 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 idea that Pharaoh needs Moses as a, as an opponent, you know, it's over. Okay. The the game, this is now in the eighth round, the ninth round, right. And, and he's had enough of him. You're not going to see, and of course there's irony because we know the rest of the story, the rest of the story, he does come and see Pharaoh's again, and Pharaoh chases after him and, um, and then kicks him out, sends him out. But I, I just want to get
0: your right well, well the, the the fact that by the way you know your your conjecture that that maybe Pharaoh needs Moshe in some respect is is perhaps borne out with the fact that uh in the next parasha they're going to chase him down so yeah. like, now now the Israelites leave and Parro goes oh my God what do we do uh we got to go back and get him and, and that would that would bear out the idea that you that Pharaoh somehow is dependent upon this tension.
2: So what I would like to suggest is that the the 10th plague is the great equalizer. So what we've seen in the first nine plagues is that Pharaoh is removed pretty much from his people. They suffer plenty, but we don't really experience Pharaoh suffering at all from any of the plagues that have afflicted Egypt. You know, we don't see him with any skin disease and him crying for food or yeah. not wondering what kind of water there is to drink. But once the firstborn are killed, the pharaoh becomes just like every other Egyptian. And his house, which is the palace, of course, of the monarch, is just like any hovel in Egypt where there's a dead child. And I think the, the force of the statement is that when Moses says, yes, it's true, I will not see your face again, it means I will not see you as pharaoh any longer. Because Pharaoh, and then what makes sense of Pharaoh chasing after him is that he realizes that he has to reclaim his status as Pharaoh. He has to do something militaristic. Because a Pharaoh letting a slave people go because he lost the contest with their god, well, you don't really recover from that, do you? No. uh, This is is humiliating for him. This is beyond
1: humiliating. It's also you know, desolation, there's destruction and death everywhere. Um,
0: the the, uh, the the poetic quality of the narrative is really quite strong. So I'm reading in chapter 12, verse 29. Yes. Now it's midnight. And you know it's midnight because they're having a Seder, because it's a Seder. They're sitting up waiting. Uh, God strikes down every firstborn in the land of Egypt from the from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits upon the uh, throne, Ad down to the firstborn of the prisoner in, in the jail, and every animal firstborn. And I this line which really strikes me as you know packed with poetic power. And Pharaoh rises in the night, who he and all the servants, and all of Egypt and there is this terrible cry throughout all of egypt there is no house in which there is not at least one one dead person uh the the symmetry of the whole thing includes like the multiple factors we've just been talking that 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 verse from chapter 12 about dead children god forbid um Comes in the context of the description of the Passover ritual, which is even in the Torah all about children asking parents to tell me a story in some some future generation. So the Jewish children are portrayed as at the edge of a great story, which gives meaning to their lives. The Egyptian children, there is a dead in every household, and then the, part of the symmetry is the is the beginning of the story of the throwing the children into the river. So the children of the 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 Egyptians threw the children of the uh, of the Jews into the river. And now there is a midah connected midah, a, me- a measure for measure element. You know, I think a lot, in my experience in the synagogue rabbit in the United States, we American Jews who are comfortable, who's you know we, we're the striking distance of the Shoah and people that we know who suffered tremendously, but we're not we're not good for like let's punish our enemies and make them squeal. But this this passage does consider that all these plagues and all of this suffering and all of the um you know all of the the especially the plague of the, of the firstborn is just the in the Torah's storytelling appears to be uh just compensation for uh for all the egyptian torture it's like perhaps another american uh reference you know the abraham lincoln second inaugural in which he said every drop of blood spilled in this war is for every drop of blood drawn by the lash of slavery uh you know that i think that's how the story is being told
2: so there's, so there's just put a symmetry, poetic go ahead the, symmetry, plant the symmetry. to it yeah. what we would say is that because the egyptians have been unable or refused to hear the outcry of the israelites they will cry themselves and no one will hear them
1: well so so here i, and want, that's to put, the not, I want to ask,
2: so could
1: you could you then read pharaoh's action as a as finally the act of a leader, which is when when you just read Jeremy Ki by the Sharing Shamid, which which I you know admit sends a chill down every spine, right? There was no household in which there was not a dead body. Then the next verse by Moshe So he is summoning them to his palace, basically. Is that an act of leadership? An act of desperation? In other words, is he now taking control of the situation and saying, "Okay, go, kumu su'u mitoch ami, get up, get leave my people, gamatem Israel, you and the children of Israel, uluchu of go out as you said, and don't forget there, you know, we have a different reading of of what's going on at night. There, I believe that they're still preparing the korban pesach that they haven't eaten it." You know, because of the timing. This is midnight. At midnight, you know, they 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 they, they were probably just sitting down. And the, the proof of this is that they leave with the dough unbaked and they don't bake it till the following morning, which is in this, this week's parsha. So he is Pharaoh aware of that? Is Pharaoh acting desperately or is it is he trying to reclaim
2: uh you know, is he is he the FEMA of Egypt here? <laughs> I think it's abject despair that he kind of throws his hands up and says, get out. It's not really leadership because he's been reduced to the level of the common Egyptian. You know, the whole premise of being a pharaoh in Egypt is that the pharaoh is completely different from the ordinary Egyptian. In fact, he becomes a god. But this pharaoh is nowhere close to divinity now. He is no better than anyone else in Egypt. He's not, he's a pharaoh in name only. And the only thing he could do is chase the people away that the people have already wanted to leave. And they're going to go with all the jewelry that they've acquired so benevolently from their Egyptian neighbors who've already agreed to send them off. The Egyptians. Right? He's not leading here, he's following. The Egyptian. I think,
0: getting, I think he's getting out of the way of the uh, of the of the events. Yeah. Uh, you know. By the way, you know, I just saw. I didn't actually watch to the end, but I saw some of a documentary called Descendant on Netflix. It's it's about this. It's an astonishing story. Um, late, late, late in the American slave period, after the importation of African slaves was already forbidden, this guy from Mobile, Alabama says basically screw you i can do whatever i want and he takes a ship and he goes to africa and he gets some more slaves and he runs them up the mobile river and they are the final slaves imported into the united states they're only slaves for an extremely short time because it's starting the civil war i think it happens like just before the civil war i think like 1858 or 1859 or something like that Um, and uh and he he does this and then he, he actually destroys the ship and, and part of the film is them searching for the ship. And because it's pretty late time, they actually know the individual slaves and there are pictures of and interviews with and Zora Neale Hurston, the writer, uh, wrote a book interviewing the descendants of these individual people, we have like actual pictures. And so the leader of the group, uh, and the man's name was Kujo, after the Savoy goes to the guy who, who stole them from Africa and brought them here. It says like you owe us some land, um, and and the guy says I don't owe you anything. I treated you all very well, and that that is like a, a particularly disgusting feature of the story, and it's actually not what the Egyptians are portrayed as doing in the Torah. The Egyptians are portrayed as saying, "Man, you guys, you guys t- can take all this stuff with interest. You you deserve there,
1: it." There, there's a sense of compensation, you know, yeah. that, that they're leaving with with Kadol, with with great wealth um and look i think the torah justifies its benevolence to egyptians later on i mean the you know ammonites and moabites we've talked about this before you know they're not allowed to join but an egyptian you're not supposed to you know harm egyptians you're not supposed to be um treat egyptians badly because you lived in egypt you know there's a certain kind of benevolence uh towards towards egypt so so we're, we're 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 almost at the end here and and you know, this this is the the foundation of Pesach. This is the foundation of of you know we would go as far as to say Jewish identity. This identity is formed in this moment. It's, okay. it's chaotic. It's um, it's incredible. It's still you know when we populate our imaginations with what's going on in the middle of the night. I have a kind of scenario where they're they didn't get to eat. They're leaving hungry. They're they're pretty obedient to Moses. This is, I I would say, you know, the sermon I I gave or given on this, or would give, is 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 probably the only time that that you know the people of Israel listen to Moses. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Alibi, they should listen to you, Elliot.
1: Exactly. No, I mean that there's a certain orderliness in the in the disorder here, Um, and we get from this moment we get the the moment of ordering. In, in Jewish life, namely the
2: seder, which is the ordered ritual of
1: telling the story.
2: But we also get the creation of the religion because the religious piece of Judaism is that redemption can only come from the hand of God. Yeah, That if we don't have that concept, then we whatever else we might have, whatever our Jewish identity might be, I don't know that we have a religion. And the Parsha is going to close with the ritual that um, implements uh, vessels that we come to know as tefillin because, to remind us every day that we make our own hand strong by binding the tefillin to it. And we have the totafot to give us a kind of divine vision That's so true. that we can see more clearly and because we can never forget that this redemption is different from everything else this is god's work you know so so interesting you
1: mentioned that and and i when i've taught this uh, i I've, lately i've been influenced by um in the pictures egyptian pictures so there is the the outstretched arm of the pharaoh right uh lots and lots of uh, egyptian pictures of Pharaoh with an outstretched arm, and so the, the the idea is that this is an inversion of that. But if you if you read carefully, as you said here, so the last verse, that this, you know, this, which we identify as tefillin, but what is it that is in it? It's the name of God. So, you know, by, by, by binding the name of God to your flesh, which was what we do with tefillin, we are we are saying this is our power. This is, you know, this is what gives us power. We we become literally the bearers of God's name, the bearers of a text on our body. Um, I, I, you know, there's no well, there's actually one more physical mitzvah that is worn on the body. Okay, well,
0: at least in principle, in principle, that mitzvah is only for half. Half half the human species, or half the Jewish people, but but the other one, we've done our best as conservative Jews to ask the ask the women to put on the tefillin. It hasn't really worked, but you yeah, know, we worked. didn't legislate no. the other one for them. Uh, you know, Barry, can you repeat something you said earlier? The the Homo Ludens. What what is the what is the definition so there?
2: Johann Heutzinger was a great medieval history. He wrote a book called Homo Ludens. Now, this was at a time when people were trying to figure out what made human beings unique. And, you know, man, the toolmaker. So Hoisinger said it's man, the games player. Uh It was someone, you know, because what people do is create rituals. And the meaning of a ritual is in doing the ritual, right? Baseball, for example, has no transcendent significance. It's kind of a silly game if you don't know the rules. But we invest it with meaning and it becomes our game. And that's true for a whole sphere of human endeavor, and a lot of religion is wrapped up in that, too, because when you think of the things that we do that have the greatest significance, they are quite prosaic acts. I mean, let's face it, drinking a glass of wine is not necessarily all that special. But when you make mm. a bracha, or you sanctify a, a day out of the week with it, then it becomes very powerful.
0: When right? you said it the first time, you, you said a particularly, I thought, you know, elegant formulation. What was it, like a human activity? What
2: I don't know. You
0: have to listen to the show. Okay, sure. but but I th- I think that I think that it is really significant in our and our you know throngs of listeners may want to just think about this one fact, which is that the first mitzvot in the Torah, uh, there's like a, a little asterisk on this, but as general convention, the first mitzvah in the Torah is the these mitzvot surrounding the the Pesach ritual. The the Here's how you begin counting the calendar, and here's what I want you to do to celebrate this this exodus, and and you're going know, to smear blood on the doorpost, which is not something, obviously, that has succeeded until—has has lasted until today, but presumably at one time was part of the actual ritual that people did, and these things are incredibly heavy-duty, poetically, mythically laden activities. So, I, I differ a little bit, like, the activities are prosaic. I mean, they could be prosaic if you were a Martian, but if you're a Jew, they bear an enormous amount of significance— and these are the deeds by which we we internalize the uh, the messages. The, we internalize the identity. We internalize the story. We internalize the idea and the themes. And so, Parashat Bo is a really big parsha for not just a story that happened to ancient people, but the nexus point between the ancient people and the the followers of Judaism to this day.
1: That's a, that's a, such a great great note. We'll end on that note. It encodes us with the narrative. Uh, as you say, and so, and you mentioned our, our viewers, our listeners, and we want to thank them for watching and listening. Spread the word about our our, our beautiful Parsha Talk, we're, we're we have several hundred, couple hundred people watching and listening on a weekly basis. We're so proud of you. We thank you. We're happy that you join us, and we look forward to wrestling and thinking about a next week's Parsha, Beshalach on our next edition of Bar shabbat. So, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom.